Welcome to Advent Sermons and Conversations. This week we have a special episode for you all where we're going to sit down and interview Pastor Danielle. Welcome, Pastor Danielle. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to start off with our the most generic question that you have to answer all the time, which is why did you choose to become a pastor? <laughs> why did I choose to become a pastor? When I was six years old, I told my parents I was going to be a pastor. And I grew up in a Lutheran church in rural Pennsylvania, and I had an incredibly supportive pastor who had me preaching when I was 13 years old. Well. So I grew up and I went away to college and I grew away from the church as often will happen. But at the same time that I was growing away from the church, I also was developing clinical depression and I didn't realize it at the time. And I was working in Baltimore in a really rough neighborhood and it was a war zone and I was working with kids and, and I just kept thinking, you know what, the hell with God because God has obviously given up on all of us, right? And so I went into this really, really difficult place. And I had a friend who uh, was a Catholic priest, Jesuit, and also practiced Zen Buddhist meditation, Father Greg Hartley, he's since passed away. And one day he came by my apartment and I hadn't left my apartment in a couple days. Like I said, I didn't realize what was happening to me at the time. I was just in that place where my wall was my favorite view, if not the backs of my eyelids. Anyway, Mm. he said, I'm taking you out. Come on. So he bullied me, which is what he does in the best way possible or what he did. And he took me to this arboretum and we walked around and he shared with me his struggles with depression throughout the years. And he shared with me his struggles with, with just so much brokenness in the world and, and where he found his faith. And he said, you know, Danielle, God loves you and this world. I promise you that. And I said, that's really nice of you. Could you take me home? I'm missing my wall. So he took me home to my locked Mm. apartment and uh, I went inside. He dropped me off. And there on my desk was a bouquet of white flowers. And there was a card and it said, dear Danielle, I love you and I love this world. And I've never left. Love God. And I just kind of broke down and lost it. And it was him. It was Father Hartley. I have no idea, no idea how he got into my apartment, no idea how those flowers ended up there, except I know it was him. And he saved my life that day in a very literal way. After that, I got help and and I started seeing a counselor. I went on medication. I was able to talk about what was going on with me. But even more so, I reconnected with my faith and I reconnected with that hope that's there and that resurrection hope. And so... I decided that with my newfound freedom, if I could do for one person what he did for me, that my life would be worthwhile and would be worth living. So I decided to go to seminary. And my whole first year in seminary, I kept a bag packed underneath my bed so that I could leave at any given time. And I actually had no plans on being a pastor. I just, he had gone to seminary. I thought, well, I I should do this too. I figured I'd be a deacon. I'd serve in some kind of social ministry or social justice capacity. And then I fell in love with the church and with God's people and with preaching. And I don't know, it all made sense. And so I decided, no, 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 this is 
this is definitely where God is calling me, or maybe God decided this is definitely where I'm calling you. And that, that was that. So that's why I became a pastor. How did six-year-old you know that you would be a pastor? Or like, what, where was that coming from at the time? Not that necessarily your six-year-old self knew for sure, but I don't know. It's a, I don't know. It's a, it feels like an early time to, to say something have that like answer. That. It's not like when everybody a, else wants to be cowboys and astronauts. Yeah, exactly. Ballerinas. Exactly. My family was incredibly faithful. I have an incredible grandmother, an incredible great grandmother, an incredible mother. My father as well, very faithful and loving. And I always looked up to the women that they that they are, and always wanted to be like them. And they they live lives that are faithful and open and joyful and lives of service. And, and my whole family, you have to understand, went to that same church in the middle of the country, right? Mm-hmm. My, my uncle, my cousins, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, my, you know. All the extended family. All the too. extended family. And the people that weren't family by blood ended up being family because they were all connected in that way. And I mean that in a healthy sense, not in the quote-unquote church family. Some people are excluded sense. And... Even as a kid, I was very anxious. Uh, And so church was the one place that was always safe, where I didn't have to be anything other than what I was, that it was okay just to be me, where I was encouraged, where I was loved, and where I was surrounded by the best people I knew all the time. And there was something there that couldn't be replicated anywhere else in the candles, in the smells, in laying my head on my grandmother's shoulder, on the singing. It was, it was just a really holy place. And I wanted to be there all the time because it was the safest place I knew. And again, I, I grew up in a really supportive family and, and household. And it's not to take away from that at all. It just, church felt like home. And I figured if you're a pastor, you get to be there all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. And now you're a pastor. You get to be in the church all the time. And now I'm and a pastor leave. and I'm in church all the time. <laughs> and I will say my pastor growing up was amazing. Like I said, incredibly supportive. The church I went to was founded before the United States. And on record, there are two people that came out of that congregation and became pastors. One is me and one is Sonia Tilburg McClary, who's a pastor in Woodstock, New York. Um, <laughs> and we both had the same pastor. And my mother was both our youth director. And nice. <laughs> I don't know, there was maybe something in the air at the time, but that's what it is. What's your favorite part of being a pastor now? I love giving people communion. <laughs> I love when people come up and it has absolutely nothing to do with me and I can look at somebody and I can say, this is for you. You are so valued. You are so loved. This is for you. And it has nothing to do with me and nothing to do with them and everything to do with God. And I can't believe I get to do that every week. That is when I feel most gratitude. That is such a gift. I love doing that. Um, I love working with people. I love seeing kids develop and grow in faith. I love seeing adults develop and grow in faith and discover new things about their spiritual journey and discover new things about God. I love, I'm, I'm the director of, of Pinecrest Lutheran Leadership Ministries, which I talk about a lot, which is ministry with and for young adults. And it's 
probably the most transformational and amazing ministry I've ever been a part of. To see people wrestle with these real faith questions and figure out how to live their faith in a world in a way that makes a difference and isn't just some kind of piety, but is actually relational and, and transforms. It's, it's a beautiful thing to be able to be a part of and experience. Those are the things that I love. On the flip side of that, what's the hardest thing you find about being a pastor? Property committee. No. (laughs) 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 Figuring out how to unclog toilets. No, I, um, my honest answer to that is it is very difficult for me. And I don't know if this is the same for everyone, but it's very difficult for me to maintain boundaries around emotions and empathy and things of that nature. And I get very invested and involved and connected. And it's, it's sometimes difficult for me to, um, to turn off those emotions or to turn off those, those feelings when I'm not in that situation. Like there are a lot of sleepless nights and things of of that nature. And I think with any community you work within systems and as a pastor, you, you really just want the best for people all the time, at least when your better self is in control. You really do though. You want the best for people. You want people to experience God. You want people to be connected. And so folks a lot of times operate out of their emotions, right? All of us do. Yeah. And so there might be something else going on in somebody's life, but they react out of an emotion in a particular situation. It can be really difficult to take a step back and just say, you know, this isn't, this isn't about me or our relationship in this situation. This is, this is how this is, this is just how this is, um, this is playing out, but it can be really hard because you love people so deeply and profoundly. You don't want them to ever think that, that you're somehow working against them or working to spite them or hurt them in any way. And, and that perception is, is really hard and things get put on you a lot because, because you're in that position sometimes that can be hard to, I don't know, to, to navigate in a healthy way. I don't know if that made sense. What I'm hearing is that, I'm kind of hearing two things. One is that there's the ideal and the intent mm-hmm. of you know, what you seek to do as a pastor or create in a church community and there's the reality of like of what everyone brings to it and the i don't know the they they bring they have different things going on outside that Mm -hmm. might not make that possible or things that are out of your control or things that like it just doesn't always live up to that or something like that it's hard to see things that get projected right things from things externally we tell people bring your whole self which is a wonderful and beautiful thing but it's also a really messy thing i would never want people not to bring their their whole selves sometimes i just wish that i was healthier in figuring out where people's whole selves begin and and i end and not taking Mm. in those things and on those things myself um got it and that's that's sometimes a challenge for me and it must be hard when you work with so many people. I mean, mm-hmm. just I've, I feel like of any job in the world or any any role, a pastor is one where you have you have relationships with more people in your work, and those relationships are more relational and not just like you know pragmatic than than most jobs, most things that people can do. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. I- I guess that's, I've never really thought about it that way. It sounds hard. I don't, I, <laughs> I, 
I don't envy, envy you off the bat, um, but I'm it's not sure that, easy. But I'm I wouldn't sure do anything amazing. else. Yeah, yeah. Well, Amen. some days I do other something else, but most days I wouldn't yeah. do anything else. I feel very fortunate. To I'm do sure what that, I do. I'm sure there are funny moments as well. Uh, w- one of the questions on our list that I'm I'm curious to see if you have a story about is uh, what is the funniest thing you've seen happen during a baptism, wedding, funeral, or church service? Can I tell you about my first wedding, my first real yeah. wedding? Yeah, yeah, we'd love yeah, to hear a about lot your of first wedding. So I actually, this wedding inspired me to now have a role that if you smell of alcohol, I will not marry you. So I had done premarital counseling with this couple and I had inherited their wedding. It was already planned, right? And they're saying things like, well, we invited 200 people. And I, and I, and I said, well, I don't know if we can fit 200 people in the sanctuary. And it's the middle of August. I'm like, our windows don't even actually really open. Oof. There were some planning things in the beginning. So, but they were a great couple and they, they obviously really loved each other. So I get there the day of, I go downstairs in the basement, which was kind of the holding room for the groom and the groomsmen. And I'm taken aback by the fact that it smells like a distillery. So apparently they had a really big bachelor party the night before and the groom was still drunk. So I came in, I'm doing his boutonniere and I'm yelling at the, not yelling, but I'm commanding the groomsmen, go, go get, go get some coffee. You do this, you get water, you wake him up. What is wrong? Like, what the hell were you all thinking? So I get him to kind of calm down. We get some coffee in him. I'm thinking it's going to be okay. The whole time he's telling me, I love you. I love you, Pastor Danielle. I just love you. And I was like, I love you too. Now sit down and drink your coffee. Yeah. (laughs) So we go upstairs and he's swaying and he's giving shout outs. It's like, yo, Mike, Mike, I am so glad you're here. Do you see Mike is here? And I'm like, yeah, Mike's here. Put your hand down. Everything's fine. There's a dog barking in the back because they brought their dog and and so the, the bride comes up the center and he's swaying. And I'm like, don't pass out, don't pass out. And she gets up there. And when you, before the vows, you do the intentions. And the intentions oftentimes sound a lot like the vows. And so they're, you know, they're for better, for worse kind of thing. Do you intend to take this person? If so, oh, answer, yeah. I do, right? Yeah. So this happens early on. So we do the intention, <laughs> the I do. And he goes... He claps his hand together. He goes, I'm done. It's good. And she, I've never seen anybody turn that color of red in my life. She's smiling, gritting her teeth. You will come here right now. You will stand straight. You will smile. And you will not say another word unless you are told to. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> we got through the rest of the wedding, which was miraculous. I obviously put in the new role. I checked up with them afterwards. They were fine. It was a stupid thing that they did. Uh, and I've since baptized their baby and they're happy and life is good. But I will never forget that. Just him. St- Yo, Mike, I'm so glad you're here. And I think, like, oh, dear God, what is happening right now? Um, so that was one of my that was my first wedding. That was that was fun. I Your learned a lot of lessons. First wedding. Very wow. first wedding ever. So that was wow. That was pretty hysterical. And a lot of fun. What are some of your other wedding rules? Everybody has to come in for premarital counseling. Your photographer cannot stand next to me. That happens a lot. You cannot smell like alcohol. Obviously, we've done that one. No drinking prior to the wedding. And that's about it. 
I cover, I cover those. Oh, and you can't look at me. So when I perform the ceremony for my, when I perform the ceremony for my brother and my sister-in-law, I say something and then they repeat the words after me. So I was like, I Cole, take you, Amanda. And my brother is staring deeply into my eyes because he is concentrating. (laughs) He wants to get this right. And I had to stop it. I said, Cole, turn around. Look at your soon-to-be wife and let's try this again. So I often, <laughs> I often suggest that. And when you put a wedding ring on a finger, only go to the second knuckle and then let the person finish it or else you end up like jamming their finger and wrestling in front of everyone. And it's, it's just very funny and awkward. So we, we avoid that too. They're all very wow. random. Random roles. Never would have thought. Random roles. How many weddings have you officiated? A lot. A lot, a lot, a lot for friends and family, a lot for people coming down the pike. I love baptisms a lot. I actually feel very honored to do funerals and to stand with people in that time. And I feel like folks' reactions are very open and honest. And I really appreciate that. I'm not a huge fan of doing weddings, Sometimes I really love them when folks are really, when they have their, their priorities in check. And it's really a cool thing to watch two people stand up and say in front of God and all these people, I love you and I want to live my life in a way that produces more love. And that's mm. incredible. But so often weddings are just unnecessary, stressful money pits that seem to be much more about having some kind of weird fairy tale day than about being married. So I'm not always a fan of doing weddings, though I've done many that I, I really do enjoy and have brought a tear to my eye. But I just did one for somebody, a friend of mine mm-hmm. who I grew up with, which was beautiful. And I got teary eyed when she walked down the aisle, but uh, there were horrible torrential downpours <laughs> and floods and it took us two hours to go 25 minutes to get to the wedding it took his parents who were not from the area over six hours to go what would normally be a half an hour trip oh man yeah that was memorable that was memorable speaking of flooding (laughs) yes um, your previous congregation was in long island which was heavily affected by Hurricane Superstorm Sandy. What was the leading and preaching process after that in kind of the recovery after Sandy? Yeah, so a third of our congregation was displaced from their home. Half of our congregation ended up with substantial damages. We had one member who went from shelter to shelter and within a week ended up having a massive heart attack and dying. It was really rough. It was a really rough time and people were uncertain where to go next or what to do next or what to invest in, right? Because we had had a hurricane also that wasn't quite as damaging the year prior and we had people who sustained damage and they they had just finished fixing everything and then this came through. Wow. We lost power for a couple weeks and our water was compromised for a couple weeks. And there was, I don't know if you remember this, but the first week the weather was nice. The second week we had a freak snowstorm in October, which was so bizarre. 
and so cold <laughs> and so cold. We opened up the church. Our church sat up on a hill, so we didn't receive any flooding damage. So we opened up our parish hall to be a drop-off site and a pickup site for, for anything people needed. We got groups together to go out immediately and start tearing down walls and pulling out carpets and doing some of the demolition work. Later on, we ended up hosting mission groups that were coming into Long Island to do Hurricane Sandy relief work. And in fact, even this summer, they hosted groups to do Hurricane Sandy relief work. We had members of the congregation who didn't sustain any damage at all open up their homes and invite people in to stay, to do laundry, to charge their phones. That cell service was out for quite a long time. We had somebody who had an RV who parked it in our church driveway. We didn't have a parking lot, we had a driveway. And people would come and charge their phones in the RV or just warm up. We would we had a gas stove so we could make food. We had just had a meal packing event, which we're going to be doing here on the 16th. And so half of the food had been distributed to food pantries, but the other half hadn't been picked up yet. So we got to distribute that from where we were. And we actually ended up hosting a delegation of bishops from the Lutheran World Federation, the Bishop of Nambia, the Bishop of Tanzania, the Bishop of Canada, the Bishop of the ELCA, uh, the, the head of the United Nations um, Lutheran World Office. And it was the first time a delegation had come on a relief mission to North America. And they actually came through and they, they met with us and spoke with us. Actually, they came the day after, the night before I'd gotten a phone call that uh, we had been chosen to be parents of my firstborn. And then the next day I had to host all these bishops and I was like, um, hi, glad you're here. (laughs) I don't really have anything else for you. Uh, (laughs) I'm not like excited about anything. (laughs) Right. So everybody was checking in on everybody as best we could. And that first Sunday we didn't have any power, but we were, we had a, a needs asset mapping. So people showed up and we gave them postcards and we said, post what you need and post what you can give. And so people were swapping And that second day, we were in the middle of praying for light, and all of a sudden, our lights came on that second Sunday. And then that that year after was was really a rough time, like I said. And so we started this series called God's Story, Our Story, and we had parishioners and members of the community, we would give them a scripture, and then we would say, where does the scripture intersect with your life? And then here's a canvas. And then over the course of the year, we progressively added to the murals until the entire community was enfolded in these murals and these stories. And I think that process was very healing. In the aftermath immediately, as far as preaching goes, it's just, it's honest. The world is broken, but God is here. The time the New York Post had a headline that said, God hates us. That was the front cover. So there was a lot of preaching about how well, that's just a whole bunch of bull. God does not hate us. God is not a sadistic little boy with a, a magnifying glass up in the sky taking us out like we're ants. The world is just broken, but God is here. So we did a lot of that kind of preaching as well. And like I said, my son came about a month after Hurricane Sandy 
And that was really hopeful for the whole congregation because it, it dovetailed around Advent. And so there was all this conversation about the hope of a child and a child shall lead them. And there was something very hopeful in, in a new life in the midst of this wrestling and, and people living in trailers and on their front lawns and, and, um, and in shelters and all of that. Fascinating. I might want to relive it, but I learned a lot. It's terrible that it happened, and I'm also awestruck by your account of how your church responded to it. They're amazing. And how the community responded to it. And obviously, even though something like that had to happen for that response to be drawn out, I guess, and I would never you know, want anything like that to happen to anyone, it is pretty moving to hear about the responses as a, someone who didn't experience that. I, I would wonder... I don't know. I, I really can't know what it felt like to be in it. I mean, did it, was it inspiring to see how the, the community responded and came together? I mean, what, what did that look like, in, you know, through the eyes of a pastor and a person of faith? You know, at the time it was just life, but I have mm. to say when I look with hindsight, it was, it was a series of hopeful moments. It was a series of, of acts of love. It was a series of God being made known in these very simple actions and connections that people were making with one another and this desire to alleviate suffering and this desire to be connected and this desire to, to recognize that there's more than this moment and this moment isn't going to last forever. But until we get through it, we have each other, right? Mm. And, and even more so that we have God. We ended up doing this play that Advent, and I remember because we rehearsed for it by candlelight in the dark called Where the Heart Is, and it's a musical about homelessness that's connected to the nativity story and, and has all of these monologues. And we ended up writing one about reflections from Hurricane Sandy and just the the incredible presence of God that in the moment is just life, but with hindsight you see so clearly, you know? Wow. But I was really I was really humbled by the way our congregation responded. They responded like disciples of Jesus, which is a pretty cool thing. Amen. The first question that came to my mind that I was curious about mm-hmm. uh when we were gonna do this is what tattoos do you have and what do they mean to you? <laughs> so right now I have, I have five tattoos. Yes, I have five. So the first one, I was in Ireland and I was a bit inebriated in the middle of the day. <laughs> so that is a memory of my youth. And, and and an amazing trip that I had with a friend of mine that was much more impulse. And I remember at the time, my grandfather, when he was alive, he, he was like, well, why'd you do that? And I said, well, this is what it means. And I, I put all this meaning uh, onto it. And I said something like, it's, it's um, you know, there's, there's this barbed wire and it symbolizes oppression and all of this. And he's like, oh, I cut my eye on some oppression when I was sledding when I was a kid. Didn't put it on my body. And I was like, oh. <laughs> You're right. But, um, so that's, that's just, just fun memories when I was living in Europe at the time and I was with a friend of mine, I have, um, I have the sign of the Trinity on my shoulder. I got that after my grandfather died, who was 
a really important part of my life. He was an amazing man. My son carries his name. And when he died, it was really a difficult time for me. Uh, but his, his legacy combined with the faith of my grandmother and the way my grandmother responded, because he was the love of her life, he still is. Her faithful response in the midst of all of it, the church gathering around her, the doctors and the nurses that were with them, all of those things just, God's presence hit me really hard, very tangibly, very tangibly. And I didn't want to ever forget that moment or that feeling of, of God being so close and yet so large, right? So small and large wow. at the same time. And so I got that symbol for the Trinity because I think that encompasses the, the vastness and also the intimacy of God that I experienced in that moment and that I also experienced through the life of, of my grandfather and, and other saints and witnesses that have been in my life. Uh, I have the burning bush on my wrist and I love that story. It's one of my favorites. I have a lot of favorites, but it's one of my favorites because I love that when Moses asks, this, asks, who should I say sent me? And God says, tell them I am who I am and I will be who I will be. And I wanted to get that tattooed in a physical way. In a, Well, you don't tattoo in a not physical way. I wanted that in a physical <laughs> way on my body in a place that I could see it. That God is God and, and I am not. And God is going to be God and I don't get to control what that looks like. But in fact, my call is to say, okay, here I am. Give me the words. Tell me what to say. And so that's the reminder in, in my life. Uh, on my collarbone, I have the word enough. The word in Hebrew, I think I've shared this before. So in the beginning, God created the world and declared it good. The word in Hebrew is tov. Tov translates in a number of different ways, including enough or complete, or whole. So by the very nature of being created by God, you are enough. That's it. You are enough. I, I had had an experience at Pinecrest where I was in a, a cabin with some of our campers, and we were doing the devotions in the evening, and, and we were talking about feeling inadequate. And to hear these incredibly gifted, talented young women just tear into themselves as if it was second nature. And all I could see in them were all these incredible things. And I realized what I was watching was something that I did to myself all the time. Wow. And, and just how important it is for us to live into the identity that God created us for and how that gives permission for other people to live into that identity. And then on my back, I have a really big piece that is the tree of life with the words practice resurrection entwined from the Wendell Berry poem, the, the mad farmer's liberation manifesto and it doesn't have any leaves and it doesn't have any leaves because resurrection doesn't happen in the spring and it doesn't happen after the stone is rolled away. Resurrection happens in that exact moment when you think all hope is lost. It happens in the dead of winter when everything looks dead, when the seed is buried, when you can't see it breaking open and right then it's already started. It's already begun. It's already happened. You just don't know it yet. And so for me, that's the, the core of resurrection. And that's just felt important to carry with me because it's fundamental to my faith, recognizing and truly believing that the arc of the world bends toward resurrection. It's really cool. So those are my tattoos. 
I'll let you know what the next one is. <laughs> do you have any plans for another one? I, I do. So one of my favorite stories of all time is the story of Elijah. After Elijah destroys all of these prophets um, of Baal, not because God necessarily told him to, but because he just thought he was so amazing. Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. Watch out. So he runs away. He lays down under a broom tree. He's ready to give up. Angels come and give him sustenance. He finally makes his way into a cave and there's fire and earthquake and wind. And then there's the sound of sheer silence. And God says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And it's after that, that God says, pretty much well done, good and faithful servant, but it's time now to pass on the mantle and it starts Elisha's ministry. And so I think there's so much humility and angst and, and theophany and God in the midst of this story. And, and it hits all of these pieces. So I, I have a, a sleeve dreamed up that, that imagines God, not in the, the fire or the wind or the earthquake, in the sound of sheer silence. Should I uh, cross out the what's your favorite Bible story question? Or <laughs> I have so another, many favorite Bible is stories. Is there another one that takes the cake above that? Elijah Elijah's really yeah. probably my favorite. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I love Moses coming across the burning bush. And I love, you know, the resurrection. Big fan of that. Those are all really <laughs> phenomenal stories. Um, every time I read through scripture, I'm like, oh, this is my favorite. No, this is my favorite. No, this is my favorite. But, but those are always the top picks. As someone who is a, a fan of scripture mm-hmm. and the stories in them, uh, what, what would you say to someone who, I don't know, isn't a fan or ha- just not necessarily like doesn't like it, but like it's like the Bible is boring. I can't get into it. Mm. to read it to read it first i would say are you using the king james version or what's your (laughs) translation because i think that makes a huge difference i don't understand half of the king james version because we just don't speak in old english anymore i would say that the bible is a symphony it's a symphony of of stories and people and voices and times and All of the different books come with different intentions. They're different kinds of literature. They come with different perspectives and people, but ultimately it's a story about people's relationship to God and to God's people. And through that lens, God's relationship to us. And there's something profound and beautiful in that and messy and contradictory and confusing and illuminating all at the same time. So if you read it like a textbook looking for answers, you're going to be sorely disappointed. But if you Mm. read it as if it's a living, breathing thing and you can place yourself in in these stories, in these narratives, in this poetry and history and all of these things, you can start to understand what that is and how that connects with your relationship to God and to God's people and, and how we continue to live out those scriptures, that those stories are not stagnant, but in fact play out all over the world daily in our lives and in the lives of God's people. And then when I say God's people, I say all people, right? Because at the end of the day, we are all God's people. So, so how, does that, how does that play out? And I think that's a beautiful thing. 
and to recognize too that God is very contextual. So if you look at the narrative of Christmas and the Christmas story and the nativity, so Mary ends up getting an angel. Joseph ends up getting a dream. The Magi need a star. The shepherds need a whole host of angels because they're not paying any attention. God is God ends up showing up to all of these various people in the way that they're able to see and hear and experience. And I would say that within scripture, for just about everybody, there's something there for you to hear and see and experience. Does it mean it's all going to connect to you? Not necessarily. Does it mean that different things will connect in different seasons of your life? Absolutely. Um, but it's... It's okay to be okay with the complexities of that, you know? It was like Rilke is one of my favorite philosophers, poets, says, you know, live mm. the questions and some distant day you may live into the answers. Like when you, when you dive into scripture that way and when you allow faith to be messy, I think it's hard not to be engaged. Plus there's all sorts of like murder and, and, it's like HBO. It's like there's murder and there's sex and there's storylines and there's begetting of begotting and all this stuff. Come on. Like there are no dragons, but there are leviathans. So that's pretty cool. I'll take leviathans instead of dragons. Mm-hmm. It's a fair trade off. It sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I want to, I want to read that. If, if that were the, just the book review and I didn't, hadn't seen how big it was yet. I'd, I'd be, <laughs> I'd be all for it. I also always invite people to start with the gospels because for me, that's for me, that's such a core part of our faith. Like that's a, if you're looking for a chunk to bite off of, probably don't start in Deuteronomy. Yeah. Starting. Though I like Deuteronomy. Starting at the beginning, I feel like can be a little daunting, discouraging. Right. It's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Some things. I mean, it's like any, cause it's, it is also a text that, you know, was created over time. So, you know, it's the same starting at the beginning is like, you know, a student reading something that was written 2000 years ago versus reading something that was written today. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. I feel like there's an element of that. Well, and if, if you get into biblical scholarship at all, it's really interesting because so much of it is oral tradition that eventually was written down, but there, there are all sorts of, of different traditions that have written different pieces. So, you know, there are two creation stories or there are multiple narratives around Noah, Noah and the flood. And there, there are all of these different pieces that seem contradictory, but you realize they're coming out of the perspectives of a different community. So it's like the, the story of the monks that go in the blind monks that go into a room with an elephant. And when they come out, they say, what did you, what, what did you see or what did you experience? And they say, Oh, well, it was really bristly. And somebody else says, no, it was sturdy and strong. And somebody said, no, no, it was really bendy and, and kind of long. Somebody else said, no, it was thin and flappy. I don't know what you're talking about. All of them experienced the elephant. They just all experienced the elephant from a slightly different perspective. None of them are wrong. It's a great analogy. All right, what are you really knowledgeable about that is not related at all to being a pastor? So I got these questions ahead of time, some of them, and I was thinking about that one because I don't feel knowledgeable about a lot of things. But I will say, so I've been a vegan for 18 years. So I know a lot about vegan cooking. I love cooking. It's something tangible at the end of the day where 
I'll come home and my husband will say, what'd you do today? And I'll say, I had six conversations, you know, and, <laughs> but I made this thing that is going to sustain my family. And I really love that. And so that's very mm. therapeutic for me. So I, I know things about vegan cooking. Uh, there was a period of time where I had a lot of expertise and knowledge around, um, around trade agreements. I had a lot of passion and interest around like international trade and trade justice and what that meant and how that related to agriculture and community development and all of those types of things. And now I still keep up with it casually, but a lot of my information is out of date because those things change so quickly. But a lot of that development work I'm very passionate about. I love to read. I'm very very excited to read anything and all things all at the same time. <laughs> and when I first came here, I think I admitted this and I will admit it to you again. Um, I'm a big fan of fantasy and I'm a bit of a scholar when it comes to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is my favorite. And yes, I wow. know how dorky so that sounds, but it's fantastic and can teach you many quality life lessons. Wow. Amazing. I mean, I wasn't impressed by the trade agreement stuff, but I'm really <laughs> impressed by the, by well, the vampire knowledge. That's fallen to the wayside. I've gotten really good too at things like Ninjago and Daniel Tiger because my kids love those things. So I've started to develop more knowledge. Yeah, you shouldn't. You don't have kids. Okay. Right. So if you do have kids and you're listening to this podcast, 90% of my parenting is all Daniel Tiger. I sing to my kids these ridiculous little ditties like, grown-ups come back, or if you have to go potty, stop and go right away. Right, those are, <laughs> those are the types Those sound very things. practical and helpful. They are very practical and helpful, both at the same time. So if you just sing it instead of saying it. It's amazing. It's Daniel Tiger is also just very wise. He's a very hmm. wise animal. Hmm. Mm. It's wow. true. Man, I'm missing out. You are. It deals with very real life situations. Apparently, I'm very knowledgeable about that as well as we're talking. <laughs> Those are some pretty cool areas, areas of knowledge, though. Sure. Yeah. I wish I was more knowledgeable in other things. I just don't have the time to cultivate. I, I know little bits about lots of stuff. I wish I had time to know deep wells of things about a few things, but. That is not in the cards. How do you find the time to read as a pastor? If I don't read, I go mad slowly. So it, it just is, happens. It's my, it's my bliss. So I will stay up a little late just to, to get a little reading in. I will read on the subway. I will create space. My husband will take the kids out to the playground for an hour so I can read. And, and I love reading anything and everything. And I think my preaching is better when I'm reading, not just when I'm reading for content and reading for smart stuff, but I think also reading fiction and how people play with words and character development and examples, the way people craft language to make stories come alive, I think is really an important lesson to glean for preaching and to stay immersed in that kind of creativity and that kind of fantastical imagination 
is a gift is really a gift. So, yeah. So how do you write your sermons? Kind of what's the process for you? Desperately, desperately trying to know (laughs) with lots of fear and trembling. So the, we follow here a three-year lectionary, the three-year lectionary, the revised common lectionary is the most common one that's used here in the United States. There is also the narrative lectionary, which is a four-year rotation of stories that is perhaps a little more focused depending on what you're looking for. I mean, it it has one primary preaching text and then supportive text, whereas it's not quite that clear-cut otherwise. Hmm. Uh, And then there's there's also a one-year lectionary and there are other options as well, but we do this three-year lectionary. So we know all of the texts that are chosen well before they they come to fruition. So everything is assigned, who's preaching, when, and all of that. So we read through, I'll read through the scripture. I spend time praying about it and just kind of ruminating on it. I underline any lines or words that catch my fancy, that stick out to me at any given moment. Uh, And so I spend some time reading the news and I do read my news. I don't watch my news. I find news media very inflammatory and and I just get very inflammatory. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I found it's best if I read. Uh, so I read, you know, really what's going on in the world and where where does that intersect with the scripture? Uh, and on Wednesdays, I have a wonderful pericope study group of, of pastors from different denominations, and we sit down and we all talk about the text and the scriptures together. I read commentaries, what others have said. I look back at, at some words that particularly pique my interest, and I'll look at the Greek or the Hebrew for them to see what other translations are possible or intentions or nuance is there. And then when it comes down to writing it, there are a lot of different tacks I take. I, I start by praying because if I had to actually come up with smart things to say every week, it wouldn't happen. In fact, you'll note it sometimes doesn't happen, and that's because those are the weeks I think I rely a little too much on myself. Hmm. I, if I feel like there's, a, if there's something really obvious that jumps out, sometimes I just sit and I write and it writes itself. If there's something going on in the world that that really the the scripture speaks to or i feel like you know it it can't go unspoken i i'll preach around that event and and really around the word and where the word intersects with that event might be a better way to put it mm-hmm. sometimes when i'm really struggling i had a friend who told me once think of one person in your congregation and preach to them so i'll do that if i know somebody is going through something or some situation in someone's life i'll think of that person individually and i'll write the sermon preaching to them and then sometimes my head is just so messed up i end up preaching i think the word that i need to hear you know, where am I broken right now? What do I need to hear? Where am I flagging? What is that word? And so I'll, I'll write a sermon that, that I need to hear. And I find because we all have so many shared experiences that, that it tends to resonate with others as well. Um, and then I always Sunday morning, Saturday night, late into the night, I'm always revising. And then Sunday morning, I'm always revising before I come in. Mm-hmm. And then when I'm here, and it's funny because we preach more than once here. So after I preach the first time, I'm like, ooh, you know, I left this out or I should have put this in. And then I end up revising sometimes more than others. Sometimes there's just not enough time in between. But you take note of what seems to connect or flow or work. 
but it's a lot of fear and trembling. It's a lot of prayer. It's a lot of, um, uncertainty. It's a really huge responsibility and I approach it as a huge responsibility. And I am always anxious that I'm not living up to that responsibility. And I'm always anxious that somehow I am underselling God or I am, I am, I am not treating the scripture with the respect it deserves or the community with the respect it deserves. So I'm, I'm always on the edge of things when it comes to preaching. Never do I feel like I've hit it out of the park or I can phone it in or, or this must really work. In fact, when I leave the service at the end of service, you'll note pastor Gary and I usually walk out and we bow to the cross and we turn around Mm -hmm. and we walk. I don't know what he thinks when he does that, but uh, here and throughout my ministry, my words are always thank you and I'm so sorry because I know that I've missed the mark. It's one of the reasons I love communion because it doesn't have anything to do with me. Um, mm. And so thank you, God, for that. Thank you for your love and your presence and the opportunity to worship you. And I'm sorry for, for the places and the ways that I, I didn't live up to the responsibility you've given me. Is there a particular sermon you remember after a national event or national tragedy that really, that was really difficult? I remember preaching after the Pulse nightclub massacre and I don't usually get emotional when I preach. I I try very hard not to because you preach from your, your scars, not your wounds, right? So it's good to connect to those broken places, but you don't bleed all over your congregation. And that was, that was a really hard sermon to get through. And I remember that being very emotional and not feeling like it was nearly enough for the moment, but it was all that I had in the moment. I had a parishioner who I love. I love all my parishioners because I'm given the opportunity to love them. And that's such a gift. So parishioner that I, I, I had walked with, her husband was very sick. She was incredibly faithful. She is incredibly faithful. When her husband died, I struggled with the sermon that Sunday. I was very angry uh, and I was very mm. saddened and I was very humbled by her and her faith. And it was really hard because I felt like, why am I standing up here? Somebody else should be here, not me. Well. There are a lot of sermons. I've preached a lot of sermons where I've lost my voice. I lose my voice a lot. So, so I, I remember preached, last, preached, last Advent. Yeah, so I preached some like silent, season, like yeah. lean in and whisper sermons that have been, that have been particularly challenging. <laughs> pragmatic challenges, of, right? practical challenges of sermons, yeah. yeah. And I have to say after some of, you know, any... Any sermon, and this is also just because it's very emotional for me, sermons on, on racism and white privilege, and especially around like around the um, shooting of, of, of Trayvon Martin, around like, like those, were, those were all hard because they were very convicting. And I recognize that like as a white preacher, um, you know, as, as a white cis woman who who, um, who identifies as, you know, as, as straight. And, and like, there are, there are a lot of sermons that convict me and convict my privilege. And those are hard to preach because they're hard to preach, but they're the, they're necessary. They're necessary. And I think that's true. Like if anybody, 
if anybody thinks it's easy for their pastor to stand up and say these things, like we're all screwed up too. We're all just trying really hard to do this faith thing. We're all really trying hard to live a life that, that exemplifies or that, that, that exemplifies what Christ calls us to, right? We're all trying and we're all failing because nobody outside of, outside of God does that. Nobody outside of Jesus does that, right? We're called to try and to pick up again and to try again. And so when we stand up there and we preach these things, like we're preaching them to ourselves too. We're being convicted too. We're being comforted too, because that word, it's, it's, it's wild and it's unruly and, and, and it just hits its target without any of our aim, without my aim, certainly. Um, and, and more often than not, it hits back at me. So I think that's just an important thing to note. Um, we're all trying really hard <laughs> and, and trying to trust that God's grace is enough to carry us through it. Mm-hmm. You wow. mentioned that you, and us as a Lutheran church, um, preach off of the lectionary. Mm-hmm. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to kind of have the very free and open kind of almost evangelical style where you, you the pastor has to pick the text or what so, that would be like every week I would preach on love the Lord your God with all your heart mind strength and soul and love your neighbor as yourself and Elijah right this is the <laughs> I so at at my former congregation it was very common for for us um, for our worship team to say, you know, we're going to do a series and we're going to do a series around hot topics. We're going to do a series around faith formation. We're going to do a series around this or that or the other thing. And we'd go off lectionary. I actually really like series preaching because you can build. And in that building, I think there's, there's so much freedom. And even Lent this past year, instead of being on the lectionary, we stayed in the desert for 40 days with Jesus yeah. in that text of Jesus in the desert for 40 days and went deeper instead of running past it. So in that respect, I love that freedom. And I think when a community comes together and says, this is really what we want to wrestle with, and then sets a trajectory to do that in a way that goes deep and creates space to go deep, uh, that's such a gift. But I also think there is incredible danger in cherry picking scripture. There are lots of things I'm called to preach on that I don't necessarily want to preach on because they're convicting or they're confusing or they're, they're, just, they're just difficult to struggle with. Um, and I, I had a, so I have a, an associate who preaches on whatever God places in his heart. He just lets his scripture fall open. So if I just let my Bible fall open, it's going to go to Psalm 121, which is my go-to Psalm. If I'm struggling or I'm anxious Mm. or I'm in need or I'm fearful, it's going to go to Isaiah God is about to do a new thing. That's something I read a lot in times of change or anxiety. It's going to go to the story in Kings about Elijah because I find strength and sustenance there. It's going to go to Mary Magdalene discovering the empty tomb because that's a place I go to all the time. It's going to open up to to first, uh, second, and third John, right? Because I love dwelling in there. I find I find those texts so healing. That's what I'm preaching on. So whatever your tendency is, whatever your perspective is, whatever your prejudice is, that's what you're going to end up preaching on. And that's dangerous because then God all of a sudden looks a heck of a lot like you and not like anybody else. 
So I think there's danger in it as much as there's also some freedom, just like anything. It's a balance. What are the Bible stories or Bible texts that are either either the hardest for you to preach on or that you kind of avoid preaching on? So I used to avoid preaching on some of those texts of terror. And a lot of them don't show up in the lectionary. And I found in my former congregation, we went through a phase where I pulled them out and intentionally said, no, we we need to talk about these, like the rape of Tamar or the anti-LGBTQIA texts that show up or the very anti-women texts that show up, the pro-slavery texts that show up. And as my relationship with scripture has deepened and a recognition of the the culture and what was happening at the time and my understanding of, of the continual movement and speaking of God into culture and context and community, I don't shy away from those anymore. Now I'm like, let's Let's do it. I'm ready to embrace Let, this. Let's, let's talk it. about it because we need to we need to to deterrorize it or we need to recognize that yes, people are still struggling with all of these situations or all of these things, you know, like with with the rape of Tamar or or various other texts of that nature. Let's dive in because the Bible isn't a how-to. It's not a question and answer. Every text is not some kind of morality snippet. And if we don't talk about those difficult texts, that's what they become. And then people say, well, this must be a virtue or obviously this still holds true because it's completely unexamined. And, and I think that leaves God very stagnant. So while I used to shy from those, now I dive into them a little more. I don't like preaching on Jesus talking about divorce read it a million different ways. I struggle with that. I struggle with some of the texts, especially in Luke. Luke can be a little harsh. Um, and and those those texts around like sheep and goats. And, and again, I have lots of readings and interpretations of it, but I, I struggle with that. The Lazarus, you know, the man stepping over Lazarus. Yes, there's there's a lot. Um, there's just a lot to convict in those texts and we should be, but they can also shut things down rather quickly. Those are some of the the texts I avoid. And I'll tell you, <laughs> Pastor Gary and I were talking about this the other day. Um, I, I get tired of talking about bread because every three years we get five weeks in a row of bread. And sometimes like, you just on. you run out of things to talk about. And, um, and sheep and shepherds, man, all the time, sheep and shepherds. And in our context we don't know sheep or shepherds in other contexts around the world. They do. That's great. But I think some of those end up getting a little lost in translation and, and can be more difficult. Those are some of the, the ones that I maybe don't jump on as quickly, but when they come up, I preach on them because that's the call and that's okay. Question about, you know, a lot of these questions are about what pastors do, what you do as a pastor. How can, how can a congregation support their pastor? How can we support our pastors? Show up. Show up. I know there are so many things in life that require time and effort and energy. I think sometimes pastors care even, like, we care so much about your relationship with God. We care so much about your connection to the community. We care so much about you and and. And, and it is, it's so, um, 
I think the showing up is just, it's so heartening when people are there and present and are willing to engage with you because it's hard to do community by yourself. And so that is a huge thing. I think with pastors too, don't assume the worst. Your pastor is going to mess up. They're not perfect. They're not out to tank the church. They're not out to ruin you. They're not out to like, ultimately we really do want the best for the congregation individually and collectively and the community. And sometimes we know things that other people don't know because of confidentiality issues. So we might address things or, or come at things from a different perspective. And we can't always share all of those experiences. And that's hard because we want to, but, but we're, we're caring for other people as well. So, so just assume, assume the best talk about the concerns. Absolutely. Bring the concerns or the questions, but it'd be really great if they, they also assumed that we, we really do care and are trying the best we can, um, in all our imperfections. So I think that's, that's a big one. Um, and that, and that we work more than Sunday. Like I work a lot. I can attest to that <laughs> as a, right. another person on staff. I work a lot. I love what I do, but I work at night. I work during the day. I work on the weekends. I work during the week. I, I, I lose sleep at night because I worry about people and the community and, and, and I lift it up to God in prayer, but it's still in my heart. Like, I can't tell you how many dreams I have that feature various people in the congregation and they're always in like crisis. It's so bizarre. It's like, they're not like, I didn't wake up and I'm like, Oh, I saw Deanna in my dream today. That was so nice. It's like, <gasps> Deanne needs something. Is she okay? You know, it's like this bizarre thing. Um, so so I don't just work Sundays. So when you call and I don't get back to you right away, I promise it's not because I don't care. And if I can't be available on Friday night, it's because my kids deserve to be with me too. And I deserve to be with them. Like, I think just, just understanding that, that again, we're trying, we're all really trying. I promise. I promise. Before we close out, is there anything else you would like to say to our listeners, to Advent members? Any final thoughts? I really do love you all. And I'm so thankful that I get to be your pastor. Like it's, it's such an amazing gift. It is such an amazing gift to be able to, to be able to, to say, this is what I, I do. I, I get to love God. I get to love people. I get to serve the community. Like, who, gets to do that. And, and, and so I'm, I'm really thankful for the opportunity to serve. So thank you. And we're thankful for you. Yes. Thank you for listening. You can find us online at adventnyc.org. Our services are 9am and 11am in English and 1230pm in Spanish at 93rd and Broadway. Pastor Danielle is one of our wonderful preachers. Uh, and keep an eye out on the feed for, of course, the sermons and conversations, as well as a, another interview with Pastor Gary.